Hello, Tree of Life Church. God bless you on this Wednesday evening. It's so good to be able to come into your home and share the word of the Lord. I thank God for you, and I thank God for the provision that he has made that we're able to come together for a time of Bible study in the middle of the week. Uh, we are optimistic. We are full of faith, full of hope for the future and for the near future. Uh, we're believing that the, uh, that the numbers associated with new confirmed cases of the coronavirus are going to continue to decline as they have shown in the last few days. We're believing for that to be the case. Let's be in prayer for that to be the case as the economy reopens. And we do need the economy to reopen uh, for a variety of reasons. People, people need to be able to provide for their families. And we want uh, that to be able to done and be done in a safe way. So let's pray. Let's pray for uh, God's hand of protection and uh, for God's hand of blessing. And uh, believe God that he will absolutely move on that and just, just help us to continue down a path of, of good health and good life and, uh, and the goodness of the Lord. So uh, we're believing for that in Jesus' name. But in the meantime, uh, tonight we have an opportunity to share the word of the Lord and we're going to do that and uh, we look forward to that. I do want to announce that we have something very exciting coming up. Uh, that we're going to be doing together as a church body. On this Sunday evening at 7 o'clock, uh, we're going to be uh, premiering a, an episode of the series, The Chosen. The Chosen. It's a series about the life of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's, it's very well done, and it has a, a biblical basis uh, for it, and it, it actually looks at the life of Jesus through the eyes of various characters in the Word of the Lord, uh, like Nicodemus, Simon Peter, uh, Peter's brother Andrew, uh, of course Mary Magdalene, and, and uh, different ones, uh, Matthew the tax collector, and and it has a unique perspective, and and it's a very powerful, riveting. A presentation. So we're going to be seeing that together as a church body on Sunday evening at 7 o'clock. And then after that, we're going to invite you to participate in a Zoom uh, call where we'll have a panel that'll be discussing some of the takeaways that we, uh, that we have from that episode. And we're going to be doing that on a recurring basis. So we, it's going to be a good time for us to gather together in the best way that we can and just see a, a great presentation and portrayal of the life of Christ as he was on this earth. And we're thankful to know that he not only walked this earth as a figure of history, but he's alive and well as the reigning king of all kings. And tonight we're going to look into his word. So I want to invite you to the word of the Lord this evening. I'm reading from John chapter 19 and verses 25 and 26. Then we're going to read also from John chapter 20. And we're going to read the first few verses of that chapter. John 19 verse 25 says this, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. I want to pay close attention to the statement, the disciple standing by whom Jesus loved. Now to John chapter 20. 
beginning with the uh, first verse. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, again, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, went into the sepulcher, seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw, and he believed. And I want to speak to you this night on the subject, the revelation of John, the revelation of John. Lord, we pray that you will bless your word tonight as we share the Holy Scriptures. I pray, God, that it would get into our hearts, get into our minds, change the way we live, change the way we think, change the way we see each other, and perfect, Lord, I pray, that, that, that grace that you are bringing about in our hearts and in our lives. We give you all praise and glory and ask for your anointing in Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen, amen. Now, I know that when I talk about the revelation of John, that that perhaps uh, evokes thoughts and images of the book of Revelation that John, in fact, wrote. But, but it's important to note that the book of Revelation is not the revelation of John. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But John was the revelator. He was the one that wrote the book of Revelation while in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And he, he received the revelation of, of what was to come. And he wrote about what the Lord had showed him. And it's a riveting book. But I will submit to you that that was not the greatest revelation that John received in terms of the details of things to come. But before that, John had a revelation that laid the foundation for his whole life and ministry and all that he did. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight, the revelation of John. There was something that... That, that set John apart from all of the other disciples. There was one moment, one act that set him apart. And it explains what we know about John. For instance, what we just read in John chapter 19, he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know him both as John the Revelator and we know him as John the Beloved. The reason that we know him as John the Beloved is because he told us. He said, I am beloved. He loves me. And I'm the disciple that he loved. He, he was persuaded of the fact that the Lord loved him. And he was very clear about that in his writings. One of the things that is very indicative of the writings of John is that he takes ample time in his writings to, to detail the love of God in its many aspects and its many forms and, and different angles and, and nuances about the love of God. 
For instance, it was in his gospel account that we heard the words of Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was in John's gospel account that we hear the words of Jesus when he said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It was, it was John who wrote that perfect love casteth out fear. He knew that. He understood that. He described the fact that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. He also explained to us that we love him because he first loved us. He said, it's not, it's not so great that we love him. Of course we love him. He is wonderful. The miracle is that he would love us. And we love him because he first loved us. Finally, in John's writings, it was almost as if he wanted to just summarize it all. And he ended up saying this. He said, God is love. God is love. And so John wrote about the love of God. And it's fitting because of the one experience that set him apart from the other disciples. What was that experience? The experience was that John went with Jesus to the foot of the cross. He went with him to the bitter end of his life. Jesus' life was not a life of ease as it concluded on this earth. It was of great tragedy and, and trauma. His life was a, his death was one of violence and hostility and it was a brutal crucifixion stricken and smitten of God and afflicted and, and, and he was bruised and wounded and chastised and, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was a man of grief and he was acquainted with sorrow. And, and these descriptions of Jesus by the prophet Isaiah were fulfilled in his death at the cross and John was there for the whole thing. He saw it all, he watched the death of Jesus Christ unfold. He saw the blood, he saw the sweat, he saw the tears, and he heard the words that Jesus spoke. Those famous seven statements that Jesus made upon the cross, I thirst, and, and my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And, and then, of course, John was included in some of what he said. He said to him, behold your mother. She's your responsibility now. And he said to Mary, his mother, behold your son. He was telling John and Mary, I need the two of you to, to connect because I won't be here on this earth in a physical form to continue with you. And so he was establishing a relationship and welcoming John into his family. And, and this is just an amazing relationship that John had with Jesus to the point that John made the statement that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. You know how he knew that Jesus loved him? Because he was at the foot of the cross. He knew that Jesus loved him because he went there. He saw it all. He heard the words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He saw that he who could raise the dead, he who could walk on water, he who could still the winds and the waves, he who could heal the sick, open the eyes of the blind, 
could feed thousands of people with small loaves of bread and a few fish, he heard his voice say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he understood he has all power and he won't use any of it to bring about the destruction of these who are wounding him. He has all power and he's laying down his own life so that we can be saved. And from that moment on, John had an understanding about the love of God that was perhaps superior to the understanding that other people have had. And so he wrote about it. He talked about it. And to the, finally, he said, God is love. It was something that just resonated within his spirit when he, when he was there. And you and I, when we come to an understanding that the Lord loves us, when we are preached to about the cross of Jesus Christ, it's as if we're standing where John stood at the foot of the cross, seeing the love of God on full display, seeing his unmeasurable, immeasurable love for humanity. And it convicts us because we know how unloving or unlovable we really are, how unworthy we are of the love of God. And here is the Lord who's pure, who's spotless, who's innocent, and he's willing to lay down his own life so that we can be saved. When you get that, when you understand that, it's a revelation and it'll change your life. And it'll cause you to want to serve the Lord all the days of your life. You know, Jesus was asked one time, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus nailed it. He said, the greatest commandment is that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. And he said, and the second is likened to the first. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So we understand that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like unto it, thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Now, many times what we like to do is we, we, like, to, uh, we like to be able to say that we love God. And we want to be able to, to just declare that and claim that we love God. And, and the fact of the matter is, if you don't love him with all your heart, then, then you don't actually love him at all because love is not something you can do half-heartedly. Love is either wholly, completely, totally, or it's not at all. Love involves the wholeness of our heart, the wholeness of our strength, the wholeness of our mind, the wholeness of our spirit, and it, it does not have to do with with just an emotion that, that comes and goes. So the Lord's not asking you to feel good about him. He's not asking you to have a positive impression of him. He's asking you and commanding you and I to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I, I want to explain to you that that's hard to do. We fail at it so many times. Oh, we might say, I love the Lord, but then our actions suggest otherwise. We might say, I love him with all my heart, but, but then we don't take time for him. And we move him to the back ground and the back burner, if you please, and we just don't even consider him anymore to be 
the object of our love and, and our commitment. And so, so it's important that we understand the love that we have for God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength is not something that just comes about because you decide you're going to love him. You actually do have to love him. And, and John, who had a revelation of the love of God by being at the cross, explained something to us very important about loving God. He said, many of you claim to love God. But he said, don't tell me you love God if you hate your brother. He said, if you hate your brother, you can't love God. And then he asks this rhetorical question. He said, how can you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? And, and, and what he was really saying is, is that when you look at your brother, you're looking at the image of God. We're made in the image of God. This is why human life is so sacred, because of the fact that we are made in the image of Almighty God. And so John said, you can't hate your brother and then act like you love God. If you love God, you will automatically love your brother. So so here's the reason we have trouble loving God the way we should. To love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is impossible. John said, the word says, if we don't love our brother. In fact, he said, you're a liar and the truth is not in you if you suggest that you love God but hate your brother. So before we can love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we, have to, we actually have to love our neighbor before we can love God. So the greatest commandment of loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is not, that's not where you start, that's where you arrive. That's a place of perfect love. That's the love that casts out fear. The perfected love that you have for God is something that, that develops in your life, not something you flip a switch and say, all right, now I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength because I feel that I do or I, I feel good about him today. No, no, it's something that, that develops and strengthens and, and overwhelms and consumes you over time, but you build up to it. And so a lot of people try to love him without loving each other, and the Bible says that that's impossible. You must love your neighbor before you can love God. So now that, that's a hard part. How do I love my neighbor? How do, I, how do I turn my affection toward those people maybe that I don't have a fondness for, those individuals in my life that I've developed bitterness toward, people that, that I have managed somehow to have ought in my heart against or feel offended at? How do I love my neighbor? Because you can't go to heaven with hate in your heart. You and I, we cannot go into heaven with hate in our heart. So we must begin loving our neighbor and loving one another. And, and so how does, this, how does this happen? Well, the Bible says very clearly, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if we don't love our neighbor, it's evidence we don't love ourselves. That's the reason that we have animosity, why we hold grudges, why we develop bitterness, because we, we don't love ourselves. And so we end up projecting that 
that dislike and that unhappiness about ourselves, we project that onto others. If somebody just hates you without cause, it's not your issue, it's their issue. You might be their, uh, their target, but you're not their issue. They've got a personal issue where they, they have become self-loathing. But, but in order to love your neighbor, you have to be able to love yourself. Now, I know people have a, a problem with that term, loving oneself, because the Bible teaches us that, that we are not to love our life, but should be willing to lose it for the sake of serving God. And, and, and that's not describing that you should be self-loathing, that you should be somehow hateful toward yourself. That's describing that you should not be selfish or self-centered, that you shouldn't be uh, uh, looking upon yourself as being the one that should be indulged. It's, it, we're not to be self-indulgent. But when he tells us to hate our life and not love it so that we can gain it and not lose it, he's not telling you not to love yourself. The Bible teaches us to love ourselves, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Let me explain. Again, I'm not talking about self-centeredness or selfishness, but if you hate yourself, you hate what God loves. If you hate whom God created, whether it be your neighbor or you, then you're hating what God loves and you fall out of alignment with God. You have to have a proper perspective of loving yourself. Amen. Loving yourself. That's hard to do though, because we know ourselves. We look in the mirror and we're not fooling that person. We might be able to fool other people, but we're not fooling that person that's in the mirror because that person in the mirror knows things about us that nobody else knows. And we hold it against ourselves and we, we hate ourselves for our insecurities, for our weaknesses, for our failures, for our mistakes, for our inconsistencies, for our lack of discipline, for how we've mistreated and hurt other people, for how maybe we have, in our eyes, fallen short of goals and, and, and various dreams and ambitions. But you know, you know who knows more about you than the person looking back at you in the mirror? God. God knows more about you. The, the, the old statement, the old adage says, he, he knows me better than I know myself. And that's exactly right. He knows things about you that you don't know about yourself. He knows motivations about you that you don't know about yourself. He understands your heart that you don't understand. And, and so when you understand that and, and, and realize that he knows all about you and he loves you anyway, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing grace. He knows why you did what you did. He knows what you were thinking. He knows the, the intricacies of your inner person and your, your heart and how it works. And he, he chooses to love you anyway. That is amazing that God, who is love, chooses to love us in spite of our failings and our fallings and our shortcomings and our mistakes and our weaknesses. And, and you don't know that he loves you until you stand at the foot of the cross like John did. John knew he loves me. I am the disciple that Jesus loves. I saw the blood. I saw him forgive everybody. 
who was wounding him. I heard him. I watched him. I saw the anguish. He could have stopped it at any moment, but he didn't because he loves us. And he said, I will forever be known as the disciple whom Jesus loves. I'm never going to question it again. I'm never going to doubt it again. He loves me and I know that he loves me. That is an amazing revelation. And that's why we have to preach Jesus and we have to preach the cross. That's why we have to bring it before people and, and, and let them see the crimson stream of blood and let them hear about the mercy of the Lord that endureth forever and, and preach it and teach it and sing it and plead the blood of Jesus and, and lift up the name of Jesus and let them hear that he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. We have to declare that because that's when people can stand at the foot of the cross and see the power and the glory of his amazing grace. I remember one time I was preaching years ago from Psalm 136. It's a great psalm. And in it, there are several verses, one right after another, that all conclude with the statement, the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. I was preaching on that, on that particular uh, in that particular service, and I was quoting those verses. And, and I was quoting that refrain over and over. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever. And, and when I did, uh, I, I kind of felt like I needed to clarify something to the people. And uh, because I didn't want anybody to mistake his mercy for his permission to do wrong. And, and that is important. That, that, we not, that we not think his mercy is somehow his permissiveness for wrongdoing. And so I felt like in quoting this passage that I needed to interject and explain to everybody, yes, the mercy of the Lord endureth forever, but it doesn't mean that you can just do whatever you want to do. And, and while that's true, while I, I, I stopped the scriptures and I began to interject, I felt the Holy Ghost check me and say, why do you feel the need to clarify my word? What do you think I forgot to put in there? Why, why do you think you have to come behind me and, and, and fix what I, in your estimation, apparently didn't say quite right? And it humbled me as I stood there and I, I realized that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm, I'm trying to come behind God and make his word more, more clear. When, when he's perfectly capable of speaking for himself, all I have to do is declare the word. I don't have to go fix anything. God, God is perfect in all his ways. And so I, I just quoted those scriptures. And here's what I learned in that. When people understand that the mercy of the Lord endureth forever, it doesn't motivate them to go do wrong, it develops a gratitude in them that he is so gracious and he is so kind and that he loves them with an everlasting love. And you end up serving him, not out of fear, but serving him out of love with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Now, it might begin with fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But, but, but when you get down, ladies and gentlemen, to what the greatest commandment is, the greatest commandment is to love him. He doesn't, he doesn't 
receive our love by, by coming into our life and saying, all right, you better love me or else. No, no, no. He, he woos our love. He attracts our love. He, he gives us reasons to love him. And there's no greater reason than what he did at the cross. And when you stand like John stood at the foot of the cross, you walk away saying, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. I'm the guy that Jesus gave his life for. And when you become persuaded of that, convinced of that, it will change your life. And that's when you realize, hey, I'm actually worth loving. If he can love me and he knows everything about me, then I can love me. I can love me enough not to commit sin anymore because of how destructive it is. I can love me enough not to abuse this temple anymore, this body, because it's made in his image and I'm worth something. I have value. And so it is, it is the love of God for me that causes me to love myself, which in turn allows me to love my neighbor because I'm not projecting my self-hatred onto them anymore. And ultimately, I am then empowered and enabled to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, and with all of my strength. Don't get it mixed up. It doesn't start there. If you're having trouble loving God, serving God, obeying God, and, and you've got a half-hearted effort and you wish you were better and you, you, you're down on yourself because you know you're not the kind of Christian that, that God wants you to be and you just, you're just letting the devil beat you up over this, hey, take heart. It doesn't start with loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It starts with you knowing that he loves you. That's the first love, that he loves me. Notice what John said in 1 John 4, 19. He said, we love him. That's the great commandment, we love him, because he first loved us. So, so our journey to loving God does not start with us loving God. It starts with him loving us, him picking us up out of our, our quagmire, picking us up out of our low self-esteem and low self-worth and, and picking us up out of the dirt and the debris and the grime of this sinful world. And he loves us anyway. Hallelujah. You know, you can't do anything to make him love you more and you can't do anything to make him love you less. God is love and he loves you. And when you understand that, It'll change your life. It'll give you a revelation, the revelation of John. And in Jesus' name, we're going to keep preaching it until you believe it, until you understand it, that he loves you with an everlasting love. Oh, hallelujah. And it empowers you then to love yourself. It empowers you then to love your neighbor, which empowers you then to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. There's this great account in the scriptures, and we read about it in John chapter 20, where that both John, the disciple Jesus loved, and Simon Peter are running to the tomb. They have received news that Jesus has risen from the dead. And, and as they run, John outruns Peter to the tomb, which, all, which always kind of struck me uh, funny that, that John would include that in the story. That sounds like 
something I might include if I were able to write a book in the Bible, you know, my, my personal uh, accomplishment that, hey, I outran Simon Peter to the tomb. And, and John did. He ran with a reckless abandon. Now, if you know the difference in the way they both concluded their time with Jesus on earth, this might make some sense to you. Because Simon Peter ended his conclusion, concluded his time with Jesus on earth with a denial, an utter denial. Three times he denied Christ. After saying he would never do it, when Jesus foretold that it would happen, he did it. And he, and he bitterly wept, the Bible says. He wept bitterly over this failure in his character. And so Peter had reservations, perhaps, about seeing Jesus in his resurrected form. Not John. John had been at the foot of the cross. Hallelujah. Listen, listen. I don't know what mistakes you've made, what character failings you've had. I don't know. I don't know what, what kind of problems you've had in your life that make you kind of hesitant to try to serve God, feeling maybe you'll fail again or maybe, maybe others might have a problem with you. You might feel like Simon Peter did, but you go to the foot of the cross and repent. You go to the foot of the cross and be baptized in Jesus' name. You go to the foot of the cross and be filled with his spirit. You go to the foot of the cross and see the crimson stream of blood. You go to the foot of the cross and see the love of God on full display, and you'll run this race, hallelujah, with a reckless abandon. Peter was like the, the little girl with the flower petals, peeling each petal off one at a time. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He was, he was kind of stutter-stepping a little bit. He wasn't quite sure what to find, whereas John didn't waste any time. He ran with all of his might. He ran with all of his heart because he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus loves me. Jesus really, truly does love me. And I, I, this is why we gather children together in the Sunday school classroom and we teach them the song, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. We teach them that so that they'll get it in their heart and they'll never forget it. And when they make a mistake, they won't forget it. And when they, and when they turn their back on God, they won't forget it. And when they go down deep, dark, sinister paths in life and feel, perhaps, because of the lies of the devil, that they could never return. We want them to remember, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And I want you to know that today, that Jesus loves you. And when you truly embrace that and receive that and understand it for what it is, you know you don't deserve his love. That's an important part of receiving the gospel. We don't deserve his love, and yet he loves us. As soon as he loves us and we really truly fathom that he loves us, it brings an, an enlightenment, a revelation. And now all of a sudden, I don't hate me like I used to hate me because he who knows me oh so well has chosen to love me that I can love me and now I can love you and together we can love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a revelation that I pray everyone in this world can receive. I pray that the love of God would be shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. And, and let's make sure that that love, which is the chiefest fruit of the Spirit, 
that that love is being directed to all people everywhere we go, family, friends, even those who have made themselves enemies against us. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for them that persecute you. Love them that despitefully use you. That's what Jesus told us to do. And we can do it when we have his love as the foundation upon which we can build to the point of loving God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Upon these hang all the law and all the prophets. Glory to God. Let's pray together in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for this night that we have to share your word. I thank you for your people, the precious people of the Tree of Life Church. I ask in Jesus' name that you would minister abundantly and give us strength and, and, and give us your power, power to love. Lord, I pray that you'll give us power to forgive. I pray, God, you'll give us power over bitterness and over any resentment. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name to move beyond any type of unforgiveness that may live within us, knowing that you forgave us when we were unforgivable. And I pray, oh God, that love, that love, that love, the precious love of Almighty God would consume our hearts until we are made pure by your Holy Spirit. We give you praise today and we thank you, oh God. We ask for your word to take root in our hearts. and We give you all honor and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for joining us here tonight. Looking forward to Sunday morning at 1030, and we're looking forward to Sunday night at 7 o'clock. We're going to be enjoying the chosen uh, together as a congregation. We're going to have a great time. God bless you in the name of the Lord.